This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. 40. And welcome. Oh, we've got a bit of an echo there. There, Carlos, Carlos back in studio, if you could address that. <laughs> Take two. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, a stool and come and warm yourself by the fire. There are stories stories to be told, told, and you are among friends. Carlos Kajina is my technical producer. Ryan White is the live stream producer. And and you can can stream this audio on uh, my YouTube channel, Strange Planet, and my Rumble channel, Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. Uh, Before we get rolling, a quick shout-out to a couple of our Patreon supporters, They're in the Star Chamber tier, Deep Paul and Tim Sullivan. Deep Paul and Tim Sullivan, thanks for your generous support. It really does mean a lot, more than you can uh, imagine. And uh, I really uh, am touched by your continued support and generosity. And if you'd like to become an official donor, go to patreon.com forward slash strange planet, patreon.com forward slash strange planet plenty of tiers to choose from just choose the one that's right for you any amount of course is greatly greatly appreciated coming up in hour two the prophetic works of 19th century author ingersoll lockwood two writers and researchers delve into the life of lockwood whose books were written before the turn of the 20th century but both contain eerie similarities with modern-day political events. Lockwood wrote a number of books, but three in particular have captured our imagination since the election of President Donald Trump in 2016. Uh, Lockwood's two books, Travels and Adventures of Little Baron Trump and His Wonderful Dog Bulger in 1899, and its sequel, Baron Trump, Trump's Marvelous Underground Journey, in 1893, and the novels recount the adventures of the German boy Wilhelm Heinrich Sebastian von Trump, who goes by Baron Trump as he uh, discovers weird underground civilizations. Then he offends the natives, flees from his entanglements with local women, and repeats this pattern until arriving back home at Castle Trump 
in uh, in July 2017, books were rediscovered by uh, internet forum users and then by the media, and they were pointing out all of these similarities between the protagonist and, of course, U.S. President Donald Trump. Jamie Fuller wrote in Politico that Trump's or Baron Trump is precocious, restless, and prone to get into trouble. He often often mentions his massive brain and uh, has a personalized insult for most people he meets. Sound familiar? Fuller also notes that Baron Trump lives in a building named after himself, Castle Trump. Of course, the real-life Donald Trump lived in Trump Tower for decades. And furthermore, Donald Trump's youngest son is Baron Trump. Chris Ariota noted in Newsweek that Baron Trump's adventures began in Russia. Riotta also uh, mentioned another book of Lockwood's, 1900. It's called 1900 or the Last President, in which New York City is, um, uh, well, there are all these protests following the, uh, the shocking victory of a populist candidate in the 1896 presidential election, uh, who brings, down, uh, brings on the downfall of the American people. So if you're into uh, the mystery of Ingersoll Lockwood, You'll want to uh, hang around for hour two when authors Todd Wood and Walter Bosley will be here. This hour, the co-founder of an alternative social media platform is here to discuss social media censorship, uh, the power and impact of big tech companies, the critical nature of privacy and end-to-end encrypted communications, as well as the importance of the de-radicalization of the internet and how free uh, free discourse rather than censorship is empirically proven to combat polarization and extremism. Bill Ottman is the CEO of Minds, minds minds.com, a leading alternative social media network with over 5 million users. They're building an open source and decentralized app that shares revenue and, and crypto with the community. Bill himself is extremely passionate about addressing privacy concerns surrounding big tech platforms. Bill is extremely passionate about free speech and censorship. He's also knowledgeable in UFO, uh, UFO history, conspiracy, psychedelics, freedom, art, and satire. Sounds like my kind of guy. Hey, Bill, welcome. How are you? I think you're on mute. There we go. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Hey, my pleasure. So tell us a little bit about the model of uh, Minds.com. It's billed as, you've talked about it being 100% organic, chronological, raw, forever. What does that mean uh, exactly? 100% organic, chronological, raw, forever. Right. So the the newsfeed algorithm, in terms of the default setting, like this is one of the scariest things happening on social media is that, you know, what you're seeing is a real-time manipulation engine feeding you content based on everything that you're doing. Um you know, every refresh of the feed, it's calling upon machine learning algorithms to, we don't know what they're doing. None of it's open source. And so, you know, ultimately what we're trying to do is everything, the inverse of the corrupt tactics of of big tech. And, you know, I know that there are a number of emerging alternatives these days. And, you know, any any platform that is is supporting free speech is is cool in my book. But 
I would say that the elephant in the room that very few people are talking about is this transparency um, around the algorithms and, and the code itself. Uh, to us, if the code is not transparent, then the platform doesn't actually care about your freedom. They, they're, they're trying to have an edge over the community. So, you know, we are uh, really trying to push that message. And uh, yeah, thanks for having me. My pleasure. So you said something interesting, interesting there. there. Wait, wait, wait. A lot of a lot things of you said there were interesting. interesting. But again, I'm, uh, Carlos, I'm getting um, an echo in my, my earphones. earphones. I'm not I'm sure where that's coming, coming from. from. Hmm. Hmm. Apparently it's on my end. It sounds fine to me. Yeah. Yeah. I'm getting I'm an getting echo on my end. I'm not sure not why. Sure why. I'm muted on my YouTube live stream. Anyway, we'll uh, persevere as best we can. So you believe that Facebook and others, they should they should open source their technology, their software? Yeah, exactly. Um, so we, we, we think every every app, you know, even even Rumble. You know, they're, I think, you know, pushing us a, a slightly better message on speech, but none of their code is is open source. So and, you know, there are a number of other, you know, quote unquote alternatives who, you know, I hope that they'll they'll realize this, that you can share your code and still protect yourself. Like you can you can still keep your uh, your copyright you know, you can, there's all different types of interesting licensing models so that, you know, no one's going to run away with your code wild, but yeah, I mean, and the, and the, the crazy thing is that, you know, the whole infrastructure of the, of the internet is powered by open source. Um, a lot of, you know, open source is in most phones and computers and people don't even realize that people, a lot of people are running Linux and they don't get it. And it sounds stupid and techy. But it's really like the core principle of freedom of information and transparency with with the users. I mean, if if, if the code's not transparent, then it is almost guaranteed that the company is is doing sketchy stuff. I mean, I know like for spying. Fact, they're spying. So like spying. I mean, even Rumble is spying. They use Google Analytics, and this like tons of of apps. You know, I'm not sort of saying that this is malicious intent. I think that a lot of people use these tools and just because it's easy. But Google, when you put Google Analytics in, in your website, you are literally becoming an agent of Google. You are feeding them everything about the people who visit your site. And yeah, you know, it does enable you to make... Uh, interest, you know, uh, valuable business decisions, but there are open source analytics tools out there. Uh, you know, we, for instance, have been building out, uh, you know, uh, an open source analytics infrastructure that we share with, with people. Anyone can go to developers.minds.com and, and grab our code. Anyone can make their own app with our code. There are, there are some people who, who build w with, with our software. So, you know, this is scary. You know, when you're on all of these apps, you see an ad, like, Google and Facebook have convinced everybody to become their agents without even realizing it. You know, when you put a little Facebook like button in your website or your blog, well, guess what? You just 
handed over everything about all of your visitors to Facebook. We've become and yeah, part I know. of what the hive mind. mind. <laughs> yeah. But right, how does, right. but Bill, Bill, how does that work for you as a, a good business model? If I can take your code and make my own social network and compete mm-hmm. with you, how is that good for you? Oh, that's great for us. That, that, that spreads our, our code, our protocol, will get us all types of contributors to our software. So we actually use a, a license called the GPL, which does have uh, a statement in it where if anyone, anyone can take it, make their own app, monetize it, sell it even, but they actually have to share their changes with everybody, with the community. So there's all different types of interesting, uh, interesting models for, for licensing where you can have that transparency but still protect yourself. Bill Ottman is the uh, co-founder and CEO of Minds.com. Facebook, are, are we supposed to call it Meta now? Why did Facebook change your name to Meta? <laughs> ah, good question. I will not call them Meta. I will I, I will never give them that satisfaction because Meta is actually a cool word and Facebook's not cool. So they are attempting to own the the brand of the metaverse. And the metaverse actually stems in the crypto community where, you know, it's sort of talking about this virtual world where you have your digital goods and assets and you bring them around with you and they're they're tied to your identity, your decentralized identity. And, you know, NFTs are tied to your address. Um, you can sell them. You can interoperate between different platforms, you know, some of which are virtual reality or augmented reality based. And like there's one really cool project in the Ethereum community called Decentraland. And you can log in there with your crypto wallet. You know, Snoop Dogg just made a uh, I think actually he might have made one in this place called Sandbox, which is also on Ethereum. But it's pretty much like uh VR, and you can buy these little plots of land, similar to other computer games, but you actually own that land. It might seem kind of hard to understand, but in all of these different crypto projects, you have these like token economies, and people can buy little different plots or supplies of the token, and and those tokens in some cases represent land, digital land, <laughs> which is sort of an absurd... T- uh, concept but it does seem that people are spending more and more time uh on their devices and we live in a remote world and i do i do tend to agree that it's an an inevitable evolution of the medium of of technology you know if we look at the history we went from radio to tv to computers to smartphones and also from you know images to much more immersive video so clearly we're going to keep evolving so where where would that go or it, devolving it, i mean do you think or this de- is healthy probably both at the same time right it seems like we're being i mean marshall McLuhan talked a lot about this about technology pulling pulling uh, us out of our bodies you know with the advent of satellite technology we are we're being pulled out of our bodies and he sort of attributed a lot of drug use and alcohol uh, abuse as an attempt to get back into our bodies. What do you think of that? Yeah, there's a really fascinating tension 
happening with that push and pull. And, you know, I, I try to be balanced about it. I try, I, I used to be much more like generally anti-technology, like before starting mines. And I was just disgusted by the psychological impact I could see Facebook having on my friends. And it just seemed totally weird and antisocial. But then I discovered how tech can really liberate people as well, particularly like cryptography and decentralized open source apps and how there's sort of this like war going on on the internet between apps that do care about your freedom and apps that are trying to exploit you. And that's happening right now. Every app we use every day is sort of a part of that war. And we, you know, with the rise of crypto, we are finally seeing like critical mass hit where these sort of inherently freedom-based technologies are unstoppably taking over. They're even taking over the economy. I mean, El Salvador just made Bitcoin legal tender. Um, you know, countries are are, are adopting this. Uh, tech and even Facebook is is you know tried to start their own crypto got blocked by uh, the feds. Um, Twitter is starting to integrate different crypto functionality. Ev- everyone has to. There's really no choice. And I, I just find that a really beautiful thing that this anonymous creator Satoshi Nakamoto could could come up with this this code that just spreads. It's like it's alive. It's it's insane. So you, you think that ultimately that is uh, that may be our, our saving grace in terms, in terms of, of this surveillance state that we're, we're now immersed in the uh, the power of, of you know the, you know these cor- cor- uh, corporate, corporate entities uh, that we we may be able to circumvent all of that through through yeah. blockchain and, yes. and crypto, <clears throat> but at the same time we have to realize that these are in a sense, hyper-transparent systems as well. So, you know, you are getting control over your assets and your money by, you know, having a crypto wallet. You control the, the keys. You know, you're basically your own bank on your phone. Now, depending on the blockchain, different blockchains are more privacy-centric than others. They're They're very secure and you own your assets but like the bitcoin blockchain is actually it's pseudonymous it's actually not an anonymous cryptocurrency like you if you know how to keep yourself uh anonymous online you can use bitcoin in a not in a not an anonymous way but you can also you know if you're using an exchange they know your identity and then they're going to be able to track your your transactions to different people so it is it's pseudonymous um, and there, but there are other chains that are doing interesting things like Zcash and Monero, where you know there is more privacy baked in. So I, it's very much up to the user to still use tools to protect their own privacy, VPNs, and um, this and, must frighten. This must yeah. frighten governments and the the ruling, the ruling class, let's say, because. It's demonstrating to us we don't, we don't need government anymore. anymore. We don't need we don't banks anymore. anymore. They must be crapping in their pants. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think that Bitcoin, you know, we just heard the Fed, uh, the Federal Reserve recently had these, this meeting, uh, changing interest rates. And, you know, they printed trillions of dollars over the pandemic. 
And we saw what happened this last year with crypto. I mean, because Bitcoin, Ethereum, you know, they, these have sound money principles, particularly Bitcoin. In Bitcoin, there will only ever be 21 million Bitcoin. The Fed is just printing money. This is why Satoshi created Bitcoin. The Bitcoin is basically this ghost in the room of the Federal Reserve meetings, keeping them in check now because they know what's happening. They're watching this happen in real time, this, this new parallel economy emerge, and they know that they can't print too much. They, so so it's, it's really fascinating to see this people-powered network Takeover and I think you know the, the the privacy stuff. So surveillance can happen on Bitcoin. However, it is much more in control of the people. You kind of have to weigh the cost benefit. Would we rather have a decentralized money system powered by the people or you know corrupt central banks that are just you know inflating everybody's assets away? You know, and over time, I think that. All these protocols will develop more privacy-centric features, but you know, th yeah, that's the paradox between privacy and transparency. I mean, it seems like as time goes on, things are getting less and less private. I mean, look at what we're doing right now. We are live streaming a conversation on video. We're sharing sort of this these intimate details about ourselves, and. We're doing that more on a daily basis. Everybody is. Everybody's sh sharing, every, you know, about their lives on online on social media. And I like. At the end of the day, I think it's very much a personal self-discipline issue for people to live balanced lives. I definitely don't want people getting addicted to minds. I want people going. You know, I I want to educate people how to consume information critically when you know we're never going to tell people what to think we're never going to tell people what to do but you know even my myself i'm sure you feel the same way like i mean i'm sure you're feeling like addicted to technology sometimes and you got to go for more walks and it's crazy that's exactly what i'm doing i'm i'm really i'm trying to right, walk, walk away, away as, as, as best, best, best I, can. I can uh bill ottman stays with us the ceo and co-founder of minds the leading the alternative, alternative social social media network and we'll uh, try to fix the echo. I think it's, I think on, it's my on my end somehow. somehow. And, and uh, we'll come we'll back and continue, continue this conversation. conversation. Stay with Stay us. With us. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. All right, welcome back. Bill Ottman stays with us, CEO of Minds.com. So is the idea here to get back to, I mean, the reason I got on social, social media, media I, don't, I don't share the fact that I'm having a latte at Starbucks or uh, it's, it's to promote, you know, my radio show, my, my podcasts. So I, I approached it as a, as a, as a content creator, creator, but I mean, I've been on Twitter for, for 10, 11 years. It's, it's a heavy slog. I don't, I'm not making any headway. None of my. I've never been able to, what do you call it, that, uh, hit that viral nerve. Mm. And I think there are a lot of content people out there who feel the exact same way. First of all, why is that? And would that change at minds.com? Yeah, that is demoralizing. <laughs> sitting, sitting on these networks for years and, and not growing, not really knowing if they're shadow banning you or 
what is really going on. But yeah, I mean, actually, we built a whole infrastructure to to battle that. And essentially, we have this whole token reward system uh, where you earn mines tokens for your contributions every day. And then one token is actually worth a thousand views. So you can earn reach on mines for for generating engagement and you can boost your content with the tokens that you earn. Um, and that we built that sort of indirect reaction to Facebook destroying everybody's reach that they, you know, spent years earning uh, so that they could actually reach people. I mean, you're only re- you're reaching less than five percent of your own followers on Facebook. It's it's absurd. It's like the most antisocial thing imaginable. Um, social media was meant so you post and <laughs> and the people who follow you see your posts. So they literally destroyed the the very most basic thing that people are expecting. And so we built this this tool to blast your voice out and to be able to earn that reach. So, um, and it works actually, even though, you know, we're a fraction of the size, we absolutely found, find that people who, who really earn tokens and, and engage the community hard, no matter how small you are, they can, that you can actually generate a much larger audience than you can on Twitter or Facebook. So you've got what, about 5 million on minds.com? So, you know, the, the vast majority of people are you know, don't have 5 million followers. Um, so the, the vast majority of people, like thousands of followers would be a, a huge leap from, you know, what, what they're getting on Facebook and Instagram and, and Twitter so, without paying. So, you know, cause you can actually, we want people to have this meritocratic, uh, possibility of, of earning their way in. And we don't want to just exploit people and ruthlessly, um, take their attention and their, their time and energy. We, and we also share our revenue with the community. So we're, we're really trying to help creators earn, get seen doing that without surveillance. And, um, yeah, you know, I, I think that we're seeing things slowly shift. Look, we're, this is a long game. Um, it's not going to be nearly as easy to displace big tech as it was for big tech to displace MySpace. I mean, MySpace was not like embedded into culture in nearly the same way that Facebook and Google and Twitter and everything are. So I don't really, to be honest, part of me hates to say this, I don't see them disappearing in the same way that sort of MySpace has sort of become completely irrelevant. I think that they're probably going to get, they're going to have to get publicly pressured to change their practices. Um, and, you know, over time, hopefully become a little bit more ethical. But I, yeah, I, I, I think it's not a zero sum game. I mean, many networks will survive and thrive and, you know, things are going to be more interoperable. You're not going to have to, uh, you know, post on a million different networks. I'm, 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 I think that that's what makes it harder for up and coming networks as well. It's like people only have so much time in the day. Right. It's like, uh, you know, oh, everyone's, oh, everyone's moving over to Parlor. You got to go to Parlor. No, no, no. Forget oh, no, Parlor. It's Gab. No, forget no, Gab. Forget. It's Getter. And then and, right. you throw right. your hands up and it's like, forget it's like, about it. Uh, who owns Mines? Mines? So we are partially community owned. So our first funding round was done. It was an equity crowdfunding round. We used this platform called WeFunder. 
and we raised a million dollars from like 1500 members of the community. So that was epic. All of those people own stock now. Uh, and then we did, we've done two fundraising rounds. We did, uh, one round with Medici ventures, which is a blockchain focused firm. And then we did, we just recently did one with Futo, which is a tech freedom organization out of Austin. And, uh, then, you know, myself and our team and, and thousands of members of the community. Uh, I was watching an interview you did uh, with Joe Rogan. First of all, how was that going on with Rogan? Did that was that like a huge boost, boost for minds for to getting on that? I mean, what a oh, what a sure. mega a megaphone that guy has. Yeah, I mean, Rogan is just really level-headed dude. Um, very engaging, very honest. You know, I lo- you know we'll we'll steal man. He'll he'll play devil's advocate. He'll re- you know he really is just totally absorbed into the conversation and i think that yeah he totally gets it he also had on uh daryl davis who's one of our he's on our team uh and he's famous black man who uh got over convinced over 200 members of the kkk to leave the kkk which is just (laughs) an amazing achievement and it really flies in the face of all of these journalists and, and kind of media talking heads who are calling for censorship, acting as if censorship is going to, you know, stop racists, which (laughs) if anything, censorship is going to make that problem worse. Daryl knows this. Daryl has had more positive impact than all of those journalists combined. None of those journalists who are calling for censorship have ever de-radicalized anybody. They are all completely. How did he do that? How did he do it? He did it because he listened to them. And he, you know, wasn't trying to brainwash them. He just wanted to understand how they thought and why they thought what they thought. And over a period of years, it does take years, um, they left. And, and you know, it's it's not a 100% success rate. I'm sure that, you know, there, there were many failures in there as well. But sort of what we're, what we're trying to do is we, we are about to release this huge paper that we wrote with Daryl. And also uh, Jesse Morton, who's a former radical uh, Islamist who actually recently passed away uh, tragically and a a number of PhDs. And what we've done is we've brought together all of the peer reviewed research and empirical evidence of how censorship actually causes increased radicalization and polarization. And, you know, it it makes people think that they're the victim. It makes them think that there's an even bigger conspiracy going on. in big. And tech. You take away their voice. If you take, you take away, away someone's voice, voice. Yeah. You're scrubbing away their identity. That leads to violence. violence. Of course it does. It, and it like literally directly in many cases. So, you know, we're really trying to spread this information because there is just this massive gaslight that is happening online right now where big tech is trying to act as if they have some sort of moral high ground with all of the censorship, whether you're talking about COVID or you're talking about racial stuff or you're talking about hate or like whatever it is, you know, misinformation, whatever that means. That just means whatever they want it to mean. And it, it is becoming so darkly dystopian that you know something has to be done and this isn't a left or right issue and you know because you know actually 
a lot of the conservatives don't like to admit that a lot of the far left does get censored as well. A lot of LGBT. Yeah, I agree. It's not about right or left anymore. It's about big and small. small. Yes, it's authoritarianism versus freedom. And so this information that we're, you know, it's a hundred, hundred page paper bringing together all of these studies proving that censorship causes greater radicalization and in many cases violence. And we, we want this to be a resource for people to literally just share this link every time they see someone trying to argue that censorship works, because literally the evidence for this is essentially non-existent. Here's here's what they'll they'll try to argue. For instance, I'll bring up one example. There was a massive study done on hate speech on Reddit where a team of researchers analyzed hundreds of millions of posts and they concluded that well yes, of course you can censor in an isolated system. But at the end of the paper the scientists said, "Oh, well clearly these people just went to other networks and became uh, much more inflamed in their beliefs. Um, and because the network, the internet is a network of networks. So when big tech bans people, well, guess what? They come to all the alternative sites. They come to us. They they go to others that you mentioned. And, you know, I think that there are cases of people becoming indoctrinated by propaganda on social media sites. So, it's not that radicalization can, I mean, we do become, in a sense, the media that we consume. But when we don't have the ability to see the full spectrum of information, that is what is going to ensure that we get indoctrinated. So, um, yeah, sorry, really, I got to jump in because I got to yeah, take a time, out, time here. out here. Please, we'll, uh, we'll come, uh, come back, come back and, and continue to discuss uh, censorship and big tech. Bill Ottman, CEO, co-founder of Minds, Minds.com. Back with uh, more in a couple minutes. Stay with us. Keeping an eye on the new world order. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Welcome back. Just a reminder, coming up in hour two, hour two the three of Ingersoll Lockwood, Todd Wood and Walter Bosley will be here right now. Bill Ottman, co-founder, CEO of Minds.com, stays with us, a leading alternative social network with over 5 million users, and they're building an open source and decentralized app that shares revenue and crypto with the community. We were talking about extremism. So how is Minds.com moderated? I read somewhere where you have a jury system. Does that still operate? Yeah, it does. Our whole appeals process operates through a jury. We essentially did that to make sure that we weren't being biased so that, you know, if our team ever did make a mistake, what happens is users can appeal and then that gets sent to a randomized selection of 12 active users who vote on it. Because, you know, it's just absurd how lack of a, the, the lack of a redemption process that there is on big tech. You know, we always want to give people a second chance. Some people are literally just completely insane and, you know, just abuse networks. Um, but, you know, we align with the First Amendment for our content policy and we want to expand the jury even even further. Um, so it's, it's, it's gone quite well. 
And I think that, you know, these are the types of things that, that need to be, that need to happen. I mean, you, having a big tech, Facebook came out and said that they spent over, I think over $10 billion on moderation censorship, essentially. And I mean, that is just such a massive number. And so we would never do that. We, you know, we would empower the community. We would reward the community for participating. And if anything, spend that money on bringing in uh, mental health resources for the community. Um, you know, don't like if you want extremism. You know, I don't. I'm, I'm not even gonna sitting here like sit, trying to de define stream extremism. I mean, right now we're in such a toxic climate that you know regular Democrats and Republicans think each other are extremists. So, you know, let's not even talk about the far left and far right. Literally, people can't even have a dinner conversation without calling their uncle an extremist. Right, so, we criminalized the difference of opinion. Right. So I, I, I just think that the, the level of dialogue is just plummeting. And we need people to start to become aware of the actual data around this issue because I don't see too many productive conversations. Just sort of, you know, mo most people who understand free speech from an, an intuitive sense, you know, they're just going to stand up for free speech because it's obvious, you know, the, the U.S., you know, it's, it's a healthy society. I mean, and people in their gut know why free speech matters, but it's getting to the point where we do need to arm ourselves with more specific information because there are people who are actively trying to take away free speech in the US. And that is just so dangerous. I mean, we've had multiple waves of like millions of users joined from abroad, for instance, in Thailand and Vietnam. You know, these, these people are actually living in authoritarian countries and they look at this conversation in the U.S. happening, and they are stunned at how entitled and spoiled we are in the U.S. to, you know, be talking about giving up free speech or like wanting to censor. To that, you know, in 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 the U.S., well, we're the Biden administration actually admitted to having come telling Facebook what to censor, which was like a shocking revelation. But you know. The corporations in the U.S. are 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 taking away our speech actually more than the government. The government, with all the COVID stuff, it's the government seems to be starting to get involved, which is which is horrifying. But I, do, do you see where I'm going? Oh, oh absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if I were to if I were to if post, I, were to post uh, I don't know. Can I post videos on Minds.com? Yep. Let's say I uploaded a video, an interview I did with uh, Dr. Uh, Peter McCullough. Uh, I, uh, he's uh, been on this show. I've had him on other programs program. talking about. Yeah. Uh, therapeutics, uh, let's say ivermectin, or the or efficacy the, of, let's say, the Zelenko protocol with, with hydroxychloroquine. Right. And let's say a jury of 12 of my peers, peers on, on Minds.com said that's, in, that's misinformation, that's disinfo, that should be taken down. Would it be? Well, that's actually not how the system works right now. Right now, the if anyone was going to report that up front, it would go to our team. And we like, so our content policy is, is first amendment based. So that would not, uh, no, that would definitely not get taken down on mines. Um, and so that being said, we do want to try to bring, a, uh, 
in the jury system to that initial review. Now, that gets into more decentralized reputation. How can you trust the people who are actually participating in the juries? Um, but it would more so be the opposite. It was like it, it, it would be if somebody reported your Peter McCullough video and one of our admins made a mistake and, and it did get taken down, you would actually be able to appeal it to the community and 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 get that video reinstated. And you would c come to us directly. I mean, at the end of the day, we're just going to be more human. Right. We're we're going to be accessible. You can't even talk to a human at these tech companies, despite them having billions of dollars of resources. Like they're spending billions on moderators, but you can't even talk to a <laughs> customer service person. It's and, and and when I post that video, it's going to reach all of my my followers, right? Right. Every exactly. one of them. Yes. That's that's cool. That's refreshing. All right, Bill, we've got to take one. This was a short segment. We'll we'll uh, we'll uh, come back and finish up. A few minutes remaining with Bill Ottman, CEO, co-founder of Minds.com. More in a minute. You want the truth? You can handle the truth. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio. To get the truth, call Richard now at 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. Exploring theories, uncovering facts, and offering a different view of the universe. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. All right, we are back. I apologize for the echo. We're trying, trying to, to eliminate all the different possibilities. It's still there. However, we'll uh, soldier on. Bill Ottman stays with us, the CEO of Minds.com, leading alternative social network, over 5 million users, and they are building an open source, decentralized app. Uh, I want to get back to Facebook for a minute, because um, you, were, you were talking to Joe Rogan about this, and I found this fascinating. I had no idea that this was happening. Uh, and we were talking about how content people on Facebook, they're not reaching their own, their own, uh, their own their followers. So their likes are going down. down. This is causing depression. Facebook knows it. They're actually sort of engaged or they were engaged in this social experiment with Princeton University, how they could control our emotions. Talk to me about that. <laughs> yeah, they, uh, they weren't happy that that one got leaked. Um, yeah, I mean, look, the, again, the media that we consume, of course, it can alter our emotions. And so what they did is they wanted to see how effectively they could do that. And they started injecting more you know, happy and sad content into people's feeds and started measuring the reactions. And that's what they found. They, they could engineer emotion. And so... You know, all of this talk about, and obviously on Instagram, it's all body image and all these face filters and likes and, you know, it, it is, it's, it's a big mess. But I think that the, one of the primary 
problems is when you take away people's reach, it's kind of what we were talking about before, just generally in, in terms of censorship, you're taking away their voice. And so when you're not allowing people to reach their friends and they feel like, you know, and then the likes are sort of reflective of this, because if you're if you're limiting the reach, you're limiting the likes and you're you're limiting people's ability to communicate. And that just has a, a devastating emotional effect. So um, I just I, I think it's absurd. You know, and the, the sick part about this is that the user experience is so good <laughs> on Facebook and YouTube and Twitter and all of them. I mean, they've literally hired the best designers and engineers in the world to create this sort of magical UI. And we're all just helplessly addicted to it. Right. If you're just scrolling. Yeah, you're just scrolling and, and they just they and, and the algorithms are pretty damn smart sometimes. You know, they will show you something that you're like, oh, you know, I really do want to see that. And so it's not like algorithms in themselves are good or evil. They are just tools. But, you know, the user should have control over what tools they're using. We actually just rolled out a build your own algorithm feature where you can control, um, you know, obviously it's default, you know, a hundred percent reach everywhere. I'm talking about more in like discovery section of the app. You can alter like how many people you want to see who are different from you so that you don't get stuck in an echo chamber and, or, you know, you can open and close your echo chamber. We all have echo chambers and we just really want to give people control over that. I think that the frame that most of us go into social media, or maybe not us, because uh, we seem to be having a slightly more elevated conversation about it, but a lot of people go to social media to get mad. You know, they're ready to have their hot take or they're trying to slam somebody or get offended. But what if when you opened your app, you were actually looking to find somebody who thinks differently from you? You were looking to find somebody who actually in an, in a normal scenario might trigger you and you'd think that they're a moron or you know ignorant but what if you actually decided hey I'm going to go and find someone like that and engage with them and see if I can make something out of it I mean that's what Daryl would do and that's an incredibly rewarding experience so you know and it's not everybody's cup of tea but look all of our sanity is at stake here. I mean, who wants to be scrolling through their feed and just be getting pissed off at the people on the other side, even if the pe people on the other side are insane? So a lot of what we're, we're, our project is, is to reframe the whole experience itself. I do want to make sure that we can get into some a little bit of alien stuff uh, and UFO stuff in the end, if, 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 if we can sneak that in. But I'm OK. I, well, I'm let's do that you. now. Let's do that now, uh, Bill, because we have about six minutes here. And um, I, I just, I, I, you know, I, I would love to go there, but I'm just, I, I find this so uh, engaging. I mean, I'm not, I'm a bit of a Luddite uh, uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm so disappointed <laughs> with uh, how I allowed myself to, to, you know, you to, know, to, uh, to waste so much time on social media, not realizing, you know, how the game was being played and not understanding why as a content and creator, I, I wasn't I, I, getting any bang for my you know, all the time that I, it just seems like time wasted, but minds.com seems like, uh, you guys like have a totally different, 
approach and it's more more creator based. So let's well let let's talk about UFOs. I mean, where do you want to go with that? How did you get into the history of UFOs? I mean, to me, it's all freedom of, of information. And, you know, whether you're talking about a corporation not sharing their code or not sharing, you know, the, your own data with you, you know, it's the same with the governments. And the governments are just, you know, they're basically just the biggest corporation <laughs> with guns. <laughs> and, you know, it's just been amazing to watch everything happening with like Chris Mellon and, you know, kind of this new wave of, of just like soft disclosure happening. And, you know, because when it gets to like social engineering, mass psychology, you know, all the conspiracy theorists are obviously justified in having questions if governments and corporations aren't going to share any information. So, you know, the burden is on the governments and the corporations to start being transparent. Otherwise, it's, you know, conspiracy is a totally natural and justified byproduct. So, you know, well, of we course, need, not just with UFOs, but with with COVID, yeah. with everything. I mean, they they <laughs> who are they? But, you know, the uh, the ruling class, the the uh, and the journalists now, the, the fourth estate are part of that class. They you know, they're cheerleaders. Uh, they created this monster. Yeah, and and you just don't even really hear people talking about disclosure and freedom of, of information. I mean, you, these these phrases are we need to get them used more often in in all of the media. I know you guys are talking about it all the time, but there's all these culture war issues happening. People talk about freedom of speech a lot, actually. Now, I think that you know it's good that that debate is actually raging. But to me, freedom of freedom of information. And FOIA is actually more foundational than free speech. The free speech is totally foundational. But but if you don't have access to information, you are ignorant. You cannot make an informed decision if you don't have access to the maximum amount of information. So whether you're talking – whatever conspiracy you're talking about, JFK, UFOs, you know, 9-11, any of it, it's like these – communities are going to be demanding answers. And if you can't give any information, then I'm sorry, you deserve to have these, these conspiracies existing. And I, I just, I don't, what, what, you know, I know we got to go, but like, what do you think is really going to change the game in terms of like massive FOIA reform? Well, I'm not uh, holding my breath for disclosure in my lifetime, mm -hmm. uh, official disclosure, sure. if that's what we're talking about. About, uh, I mean, the justification is always the noble, the noble, the noble, noble lie. lie. We can't handle the truth. truth. Mm. Uh, and so, I mean, states have to have secrets, secrets obviously, obviously, if, if, if they're, they're going, going to, to uh, you know, prevent information from falling into the wrong hands and so forth. I get that. States have to have a certain uh, amount of amount secrets. Of secrets. Uh, but it just seems like the the amount of secrecy, I would say, you know, probably 90 percent of what, of they're, what doing, they're doing, we have no idea. Mm. No idea. Uh, what's it going to take? Boy, boy, boy. boy. Um, well, it's a great I, point that, you know, yeah. there, there do have to be some secrets. I mean, we don't want the, you know, nuclear uh, 
cocktail, you know, the ingredients to bioweapon, like necessarily getting published. But I think that it's, it's similar to when you ask like, well, you guys release your code. Like what, you know, is that, is that smart? You know, I do think that there's just excessive fear around, you know, sharing information, whether it's corporation or government and it, but it's, 90% of it is, is, is unjustified. Absolutely. And, uh, Absolutely. Um, you well, know, I, national yeah, I would love for them to open source the technology behind the TR-3B, for example. Yeah. You know, yes. uh, why are we still sending astronauts, uh, you know, up into space using rocket fuel? I mean, it's a, it's, it's just window dressing. I mean, these people, you know, whenever there's a shuttle disaster or whatever, these people have blood on their hands because it's all so unnecessary. You know, Boeing had and were experimenting and had a near breakthrough with anti-gravitics in the 19, well, they talked about it publicly in the late 1950s. And then all of a sudden this iron curtain descended and we didn't hear anything more about it. And, and the, and the TR-3B, TR-3B seems to have some anti-gravitic propulsion uh, aspects to it. Uh, Bill, we have to, we have to have you back on and just talk UFOs. I love it. Let's do it. Thanks for having right. me. Yeah. My pleasure. Minds.com. Yep, minds.com slash Ottman. Hit me up. Thanks for having me. Will do. All right, right. Bill Ottman. When we come back, the mystery of Ingersoll Lockwood. Stay with us. You want the truth? You can handle the truth. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To get the truth, call Richard now at 416-360-0740 or toll free at Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. Hey, thanks for inviting me into your home, your long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' well-appointed basement with the simulated wood paneling, electric fireplace, and the painting of dogs playing poker, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. Uh, this hour, Ingersoll Lockwood and uh, his amazing prophetic books. Lockwood was a, a 19th century American lawyer, writer, novelist, whose works were obscure until they uh, won renewed a- attention in 2017 because of his book's apparent similarities to current events. His uh, 1896 novel, 1900, or The Last President, has become the focus of renewed attention online, of course, following the uh, the so-called insurrection. Let's let's say it that way: the so-called insurrection at the Capitol in Washington on Jan 6, 2020, uh, 2021, rather, 
because of uh, the closing pages in 1900 or the last president describe a similar event. The story follows a, a president from New York and even mentions a Fifth Avenue hotel in the city where Trump Tower now now stands. Fifth Avenue was a famous address even then. And two of Lockwood's other books, The Travels and Adventures of Little Baron Trump and His Wonderful Dog Bulger and Baron Trump's Marvelous Underground Journey feature a character named Baron Trump. The president's youngest son is, of course, named Baron. And uh, Baron travels to Russia and meets a man called Don uh, Don Fum. However, in this case, both Baron and Don are titles, not personal names. In The Last President, the president is a populist who won the 1896 election and eventually leads to the downfall of the republic. As a Twitter user, Ava Collins pointed out, Lockwood wrote about an artillery attack that shook the capital to its very foundations. So who is this mysterious Ingersoll Lockwood and how did he know so much about the future? Todd Wood and Walter Bosley are the authors of The Mystery of Ingersoll Lockwood, Volume 1, The Lost Future Series. They've also co-written or co-authored The Curious Case of Margareta Todd, Volume 2, The Lost Feature Series. Todd Wood and Walter Bosley, welcome. How are you? Hello. I'm well. How are you? I'm well. Is this Todd or Walter? I'm, I'm doing good. It's good to be here. Ah, okay. Walter and Todd, great to have you both. So um, I'm just going to throw this out there. Whoever wants to jump on any of these questions, just take it and run with it. But so let's try to understand a little bit about Ingersoll Lockwood. Give us a, kind of the Reader's Digest version of who he was, where he came from. Walter, you want me to do this or do you got it? <laughs> um, Todd, did you want me to go first or you? Yeah, you go. You go ahead, Walter. Okay. okay. Um, well, as you put it, he was a lawyer, an author, an obscure person, really an unknown person until the 2016 election or, or the aftermath of it. And it, it, it he came on the scene because it appeared that he predicted uh, the, the presidency of Donald Trump, or at least Donald Trump coming on the scene. Um, but what was interesting is it was kind of obliquely in the book, Baron Trump's Marvelous Underground Journey, of course, as you stated, the little boy in the story, Baron Trump, that, of course, is a title. But in the illustrations in the book, um, he bears a remarkable resemblance to the actual Baron Trump of our day, uh, at the time his father was elected president. And uh, that's not all. Lockwood also writes this book, The Last President, as you uh, uh, mentioned previously, a moment ago. And it foretells basically the, uh, the splintering is the result into three parts of the United States. What's curious about that is the book, The Last President, doesn't really have anything to do with Donald Trump. It's uh, a Democrat president, and it's all about um, really the uh, uh, 
the conflicts, the political conflicts going on in the country, and yet it is incredibly, incredibly prescient of what we've been going through over these last few years, and particularly now. And again, Lockwood was essentially an unknown until all of this happened. So we asked the question also, who the heck was Ingersoll Lockwood, and and how did this happen? Uh, I, I one thing I didn't know about Ingersoll Lockwood. Well, I didn't know much, but I didn't realize that he was um, he was named as a diplomat in the Abraham Lincoln administration. Yes, he was the youngest, right, Todd? Yes, one of the youngest uh, from 1862 to 1865, 1866. I believe he left right before the Austro-Prussian War broke out. So he was uh, an uh, an ambassador to the Kingdom of Hanover, which is what uh, was part of Germany. Well, what is part of now modern day Germany? Mm-hmm. Correct. Uh, yeah, up until the unification of Germany, of course, uh, Germany was composed of roughly, I think it was forty eight independent states, and um, again as a representative to the Kingdom of Hanover. Uh, Lockwood would have been there really during the um, the heart of a lot of those unification-related intrigues going on. And, of course, being there right up until the Austro-Prussian War, uh, this was during the time of Napoleon III, who, it appears... Uh, plays a role in this greater mystery, as we discuss in the second book, um, because Mr. Lockwood and Napoleon III had a mutual friend in Margareta Todd. Um, right. We'll, we'll probably get into that maybe at a, on a future show. Sure. But I, yeah. because what, what, obviously the central theme here and what everybody wants to know is, mm-hmm. uh, you know, is it possible to see events before they happen? And in this discussion, you, you discuss in, in the book, in chapter one, um, not only, you know, could we have this conversation about Ingersoll Lockwood and whether he foresaw the presidency of Donald Trump, but you also bring into uh, into the discussion author Jonathan Swift and uh, Jules Verne. Talk to me about that. Mm-hmm. Well, um, Swift is believed to have um, predicted uh, the, uh, the the moons, I believe, of Mars. It, it's Mars, right, Todd? Yes, yes, Mars. Yeah, yeah. The the the, the moons of Mars uh, before they were seen astronomically, and of course, Jules Verne, as we know, um, is suspected to have been given information by a secret society the uh, Association d'Angelique, or the Angelique Society, Society d'Angelique, or the Angelic Society, um, which may have been a secret group that was dabbling in um, secret technology as well as, you know, forms of divination, if you will. And so there's this history of individuals who were, through their writings, presenting things that came true, as it were, right, or or were learned to be real, you know, decades, centuries later. And uh, Lockwood, of course, his works end up being 
in that category. Now, either it's a good guess, a lucky guess, or obviously, in the case of Vern, he inspired scientists and engineers to go on and make his visions reality, or these guys had some access to looking into the future. And uh, Lockwood, especially, in, uh, in my opinion, in our shared opinion, I think. Right. Oh, yeah. uh, similar to uh, Arthur C. Clarke, for example, I forget which book, but sort of predicting um, satellites, you know, before mm-hmm. before the advent of Sputnik in 1958 or whatever it was. Yeah, yeah that, that's, that's correct. That's a, a lot more like a technological envisioning because of the technology coming at the time. What these guys did was actual look like having knowledge they shouldn't have, um, right. you know, due to the details and such. And um, when you look at the illustration back in the 1890s of the character Baron Trump, and it looks so remarkably like Donald Trump's son at the time Trump was elected, you have to wonder, uh, this is in the case of the illustrator, Charles Howard Johnson, who we go into because he's a bit of a mystery himself. He illustrated these books for Lockwood. And, uh, you know, how he got this image that was so exact is just kind of mind-blowing. So was Johnson Lockwood's source on the future? And we asked that question in the book and analyzed that. But we'll I, I do want to I do want to come back to Charles Howard Johnson. I, I just want to get back sure. to some of the other the, the similarities, these eerie similarities between Ingersoll sure. Lockwood's uh, books and details about the characters and how they so closely resemble um, uh, Trump's family, paternal grandfather and so forth. Can you walk us through some of these either? Uh, uh, Todd, do you want to take that one? Um. I think Walter would do, do a better job than I would on that okay. one. All right, go ahead, Walter. I'm sorry, I'm just really nervous. That's all right. That's all right. You're just <laughs> talking him, you, to a neighbor Todd, across the Todd, fence. Yeah, Todd has done just incredible research on these, and that's how I learned about this and got involved with you know doing these with him because his research is just outstanding and and such. And we analyze it together, but basically, what it what it appears to us as we have discussed this and analyzed it, is that um, Lockwood was possibly using what an associate of mine calls karmic frequency, and that's sort of a divination using birth dates um, and and all this arcana. Um, But Charles Howard Johnson... You know, the visual implies some type of actual seeing into the future. So did Johnson uh, have some type of device where he actually saw these figures, the Trump family members, the, you know, the, the events going on? And did he just get glimpses and Lockwood did his best to um, put together what he was divining as far as the events go, or was Charles Howard Johnson himself a time traveler? At any rate, uh, Lockwood put down in these books this stunning data that is so predictive. And I argue, and and Todd and I argue in the book together, that um, what Lockwood did was some form 
of divination, some type of analysis of data between what Johnson gave him and what he was able to gather on individuals, which implies that Lockwood may have been acquainted with a Trump family member of that time, perhaps Trump's great-grandfather or grandfather. Oh, that's interesting. Okay, so let's walk through some of the the parallels between the actual uh, Trump, uh, Donald Trump, and uh, the the character of Baron Trump in the book. So uh, let's talk about you know things like their German ancestry and and Donald Trump's, uh, I guess, affinity for Eastern European women and these sorts of things. Yeah, it's interesting that um, the book being primarily focused on the boy character, but, you know, the Baron Trump. It, yeah, indeed, things about Donald's own life come through in these stories. And um, again, this, is, this indicates to us that Lockwood was more doing more of a divination kind of thing because Clearly, as we see the details and the facts, these things, a lot of these things are about Donald, okay, not his son named right. Baron. But here you have Lockwood attributing them to the, the boy character. That suggests that Lockwood had this data, divined this data, was given this data, but wasn't quite sure, uh, you know, how the puzzle fit together. He just knew he had these pieces. For whatever reason, it rang true to him intuitively that there was something to the data, and he just did the best he could to put it together. And the important thing is, is that he did put it together. He did commit it to paper to get it, you know, published. And there it was out there, Mm -hmm. you know, in the world to be discovered. Now, we also suggest in the book were these Lockwood books in the family library as Donald Trump was growing up. Did he name his son Baron that because he was familiar with Lockwood's book growing up? There, there's always that possibility, but the problem right, the more is, the more prosaic explanation. Um, yeah. Todd Wood and Walter Bosley are with us here on the program. We're talking about uh, Ingersoll Lockwood, Lockwood, and their book is called The Mystery of Ingersoll Lockwood, The Mystery of Ingersoll Lockwood. This is available at lulu.com, L-U-L-U dot com. So just, uh, we've got about uh, six minutes here before the break. Either of you, uh, Todd or Walter, just uh, hit on some, again, some of these interesting resonance resonance points uh, in Lockwood's books and the real Trump family. Well, one thing I noticed was... uh his name was Baron, right? Was was it one R or two R's? I forget. And um, the, the Donald the Trump title was one R. The Donald Trump's two R's. Yeah. Right. Donald Trump is in real estate, but and it, uh, if he were alive back in the 1800s, he would be a land baron. That's one uh, connection or something that's sort of a something I noticed. Right. Right. Also, the date of birth. Mm -hmm. Uh, So Donald Trump, the 45th president, was born on the 14th of June. Mm -hmm. And little Baron Trump in the book, all we know, he's born midsummer. Midsummer is typically 
well, you, 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 you give the range here, midsummer date range of the 19th to the 25th of June. So that's kind of, that's pretty close. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Plus uh, also, the, uh, Donald Eastern Trump. European connection. Right. Yes. Talk, uh, talk more about the European connection, if you will. Well, uh, at one point in the underground journey story, young Baron Trump, the Baron Trump in the story, he, I believe he enters the underground world in the Ural Mountains in Russia. And, of course, we have all those intrigues that Donald Trump suffered uh, regarding Russia. And um, we have the affinity for the Eastern European things and the fine things in life. And, of course, that explains Donald Trump right there, the finer things in life. It's, he is, you know, has a taste for Eastern European ladies. And uh, it's, it's those little suggestive things that, you know, you, you just that, that pile up to the point where, you know, you come away from this thinking, saying, okay, there's got to be something, got to be something weird going on here. This is just too, too strange. Right. So the, the Baron Trump in Lockwood's book is an egoist, to say the least. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that sort of parallels, obviously, with with uh, 45, President Trump. Mm-hmm. But the other mm-hmm. thing that strikes me is uh, Baron Trump, the character, his his uh, habit of coming up with uh, kind of nasty nicknames for people. Talk yeah. to me about that. <laughs> Go ahead, Todd. Well, yep, he does. He does come up with uh, nasty nicknames for people, just like um, Donald Trump. Isn't that kind of uh, interesting? Um, another thing that I sort of, uh, that I gravitated to, uh, adding to what Walter was saying about the Ural Mountains, is the Ural Mountains has a long history of um, weird things being found inside the caves there and um, uh, its connection to the hollow earth and UFO sightings in that particular area. Um, so that's that's another thing I've noticed. But... Um, yeah, he does. It's kind of comical. He does come up right. with uh, dirty nicknames. Right, and of course Donald Trump would. Uh, it's uh, uh, who was it? Lying, lying Hillary, and and um, <laughs> uh, yeah, he had a name for everybody. Every one of his uh, his uh, opponents during the uh, twenty sixteen the primaries, and, and then during the election, he had a nickname for everybody. Uh, and that mm-hmm. certainly mirrors Baron Trump in Ingersoll Lockwood's book. Um, We've got about two minutes here. I want to just jump ahead, if we could, uh, to the book 1900 or The Last President. And this, to me, is absolutely um, astounding because in the book, uh, there's a lot of uh, rioting and protesting and civil uh, civil unrest because of the president. And that obviously uh-huh. mirrored what happened in in, uh, you know, t- uh, parts of 2019 and 2020. Right. Right. And um, they, here's the interesting thing I noticed. Even though there was on November 3rd, the election of 2020, even though there was a lack of rioting uh, or less than you what we would think. Right. Considering the summer um, with places like New York and Portland, 
Um, this article came out in Times Magazine, uh, the uh, shadow campaign to secure the 2020 election, where they call it a shadow conspiracy. And they even go on to say in that same article that they had operatives in, in place just in case Donald Trump won to actually start uh, rioting and looting and everything of that nature. And in 1900, the last president, uh, there are these roving gangs, you know, threatening to burn people's houses down and kick them out of their houses. And they're I guess they're storming. They're trying to storm uh, Trump Castle. Right. Right. Yes. Right. Right. Um, But the here's the interesting thing. Now, here's another parallel. Um, okay, Brian Todd, sorry, Todd, I'm going to get you to hold on. We're going to take a quick time out. Okay. I'm just looking at the clock here. We'll come back and we'll get to that interesting parallel. Todd Wood, Walter Bosley, co-authors of The Mystery of Ingersoll Lockwood. Back with more in a minute. Don't go away. Corporations, governments, and sometimes entire civilizations. What goes up must come down. And it lands on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. The world is being pulled over your eyes. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To reach Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. And we are discussing the mystery of Ingersoll Lockwood. The co-authors Todd Wood and Walter Bosley stay with us. Ingersoll Lockwood, of course, uh, really was rediscovered after the election of Donald Trump because of the eerie similarities in the uh, the Donald Trump saga and Lockwood's, uh, well, three books, two in particular, The Travels and Adventures of Little Baron Trump, which was writ- written in um, 1889, and Baron Trump's Marvelous Underground Journey, which was the sequel that came out in 1893, and then uh, I guess the third book in the uh, triumvirate or the trilogy is 1900 or The Last President, uh, which depicts the election of a populist president winning the 19 or the 1896 election eventually leads to the downfall of the republic. All right, uh, Todd, you were going to tell us another sort of interesting little uh, uh, parallel between Lockwood's books and his characters and the Trump family. Right. Uh, well, Something in 1900, the last president. Um, the president's name is Brian. That's supposed to be William Jennings Bryan. Um, Ingersoll Lockwood was a Republican, and this was it was kind of a um, propaganda piece against the populist William Jennings Bryan. And interestingly enough, during the, the election of 1900, um, it was William Jennings Bryan who was kind of campaigning nonstop doing 10, 20 speeches a day, right? Going from place to place via train, just like Donald Trump was doing, flying from place to place in 2020. And uh, in 1900, uh, the election of 1900, it was uh, William McKinley who was just kind of sitting on his porch and letting people come to him, right? And it was when Joe Biden in his basement. Yeah, just like Joe Biden in his basement. Yes. Fantastic. Exactly. So uh, so, um, talk to me, either of you, about Ingersoll Lockwood's 
uh, involvement in this. I don't know if we call it a secret society, but it's an interesting club called in New York called the Titans. Who wants to handle that one? Tell me about the Titans. Well, Todd um, has done the uh, main research on the Titans. I will say this, that we're going to be focusing on the Titans in the next book. But as far as what we know so far, Todd, I think, is probably better equipped to tell you that. Okay, yeah, so tell me about tit- this, uh, this Secret of New York organization. Right, the Union of the Titans. Now, the Titans, to be a member of the Titans, to qualify as a member, you had to be at least six foot two inches. Donald Trump is six foot two inches. So is Nikola Tesla. Now, the whole point of this club is to study mythology, right? And allusion to mythology. So they would have been really interested in things like the Sumerian tablets or Greek mythology, or, or things like that. And they would meet, um, They, I think they would meet and they'd have dinner, and uh, the, that's, that was their whole thing. And um, their, their whole idea was the idea of property equaling sovereignty. Okay. So who are some of the other members of this uh Union of Titans. Lockwood is a member. You also mentioned, um, we don't know for sure, but the Titans could have included industrialists, people like the man who founded the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania, of course, which is Donald Trump's alma mater. And that was Joseph Wharton. Was he a member? Do we know? I think he was. I think he was. Also, uh, William B. Woodward, um, one of the people who may have started sort of the early rumblings of the Humane Society in New York for animals. Right. But the, the Wharton connection um, to Trump, because, again, he went to the Wharton School. So mm-hmm. is, I'm just wondering if there is some way, um, uh, Walter if, or Todd, mm-hmm. either of you, is there some way that, again, Lockwood interacting with Wharton Maybe telling him this story uh, uh, that he was writing, is it possible that somehow um, Wharton mentioned these things? Maybe it was there was mention of it in somewhere in in the Wharton Library that Trump could have had access to this. He could have been influenced or indirectly by Lockwood through Joseph Wharton. Sure, in other words. Yeah, absolutely. This is this is another uh, possibility. The Wharton connection, as well as. As I said earlier, did the Trump family have the Lockwood books in their personal library? Were the Lockwood books in the Wharton library? As you stated, of course, is there something that Wharton himself might have communicated through some documents that uh, Donald Trump was exposed to or was shown? Uh, There is also the possibility of the Titans, particularly through the industrialist members among them, being involved with the development of technology, of course, uh, from the 19th century into the 20th century. And that brings up the issue of Nikola Tesla, which brings up the issue of Trump's uncle, John, who was an MIT uh, electrical engineer with MIT, greatly respected and um, was selected by the FBI when Nikola Tesla died 
to be the FBI's representative to go read through the secret Tesla papers, as we call them today, the papers that were in Tesla's safe in his uh, residential suite at the hotel in which he he died in 1943. This was Donald Trump's uncle, whom he was very close to, was the man who knew what was in those secret papers that we'd all now love to see. Um, Is it possible that John Trump had some connection or or, uh, was influenced himself by someone who had been a member of the Titans years before? And this influence passed through John to Donald. That is a, a strong possibility there that we've, you know, only begun to really look at so far. All right. I want to circle back now to uh, Charles Howard Johnson. He's the illustrator and he's hmm. the one responsible for this uncanny resemblance between uh, a Baron Trump in Lockwood's book, the character Baron Trump in Lockwood's book and John or Donald Trump's son, Baron. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. tell me about he's kind of a mysterious character. Uh, what, what can you tell us about what do we know about Ch- Charles Howard Johnson and how he arrived in New York to meet Ingersoll Lockwood? Uh, Todd, do you want me to take this one? Yeah, go for it. All righty. Charles Howard Johnson. All that was known about him by his peers and all that we know about him today is that he appears on the scene in New York City in the 1880s. He claims to have gone to an art school in Cincinnati, and he goes into illustration for various magazines and book publishers and the like, and that's how he ended up illustrating the Lockwood Baron Trump book. And what's interesting about Johnson is that no one ever confirmed his backstory. No one ever, there's no way to confirm presently that he indeed went to the Cincinnati Art School, uh, where he was born, where he came from before New York. It is just known that his peers in New York greatly respected his abilities and they liked him. And uh, even when he passed away, um, there's no information we've found yet as to where he was buried. And uh, you find out about his death through a source that said, oh, he, he died of what they called brain fever back then. So in a way, he disappeared just as mysteriously as he appeared on the scene. So Charles Howard Johnson, other than the illustrations, which you can find online, you can Google him, and there's his illustrations, he's really a cipher. Well, this is the guy who, as we stated, uh, did these incredibly accurate uh, illustrations, one in particular of Donald Trump's son, Barron Trump, born, what, 100 years later. Uh, So was he, was he the source of this future knowledge? Did he have glimpses or did he give glimpses or data to Lockwood? And where did he go? Where did he end up? Um, he, he's truly the big mystery at the center of the Lockwood mystery in itself. And, and in the book, we get into some pretty wild possibilities with, right. We'll, we'll uh, do that when we come back, Johnson. because I, I, we, you, you bring up the name of Jack Finney, uh, yes. a great science fiction uh, era. People will remember the invasion of the body snatchers. And um, uh, there is a connection between 
science fiction writer Jack Finney and his mysterious Charles Howard Johnson, the illustrator of the Ingersoll Lockwood books. We'll get into that when we come back. Todd Wood, Walter Bosley, stay with us. The book is The Mystery of Ingersoll Lockwood, and uh, that's available at lulu.com, L-U-L-U, lulu.com. Back with more in a minute. Don't go away. Where there's smoke, there's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. And we're back with co-authors Todd Wood and Walter Bosley. The book is The Mystery of Ingersoll Lockwood. This is volume one of the Lost Future series. And uh, you can find this book for sale at lulu.com, L-U-L-U.com. And I'm going to fix the link uh, at strangeplanet.ca. So when you click on the book title, The Mystery of Ingersoll Lockwood, Volume 1, it'll take you right there. I think right now it takes you to Goodreads. But uh, I'll uh, I'll fix the link, and then it'll take you directly to the uh, book link at lulu.com. So we were talking about this science fiction writer, Jack Finney, um, who we know best probably from The Invasion of the the Body Snatchers. Uh, But he he wrote two other books. Time and Again, and The Third Level. And you make the case, uh, both of you, that it's perhaps uh, Charles Howard Johnson, who died in the, um, uh, I guess, 18, 1894 or something like that, 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 that Charles Howard Johnson may have showed up as a character in, in two of Finney's books. And possibly... Richard Matheson's very popular somewhere in time as well. But yes, Jack Finney, of course, was uh, is very well known as the author of uh, two of the greatest classic time travel stories. One of them, kind of the third level, which was a short story, and then the other, his novel, Time and Again, which came out a few years before Matheson's Somewhere in Time, which was made into the very popular film. And what's interesting is that um, uh, in Finney's story, the protagonist journeys through time using a mental process, right? Just like the character in Somewhere in Time wills himself back in time. In the novel, time and again, of course, he elaborates on this further. This is the Jack Finney novel I'm talking about. And he goes back in time to 1896 um, uh, and uh, uh, falls in love with a woman and then, of course, returns to the future. And this is very similar to, or I should say, Matheson's novel, Somewhere in Time. Again, a character in 1896 uses his mental power to go back in time, falls in love with a woman, dies of a broken heart, when he loses her. Now, what's interesting is how Charles Howard, Howard Johnson were told that he died of this vague brain fever. And what's interesting is uh, Johnson himself was engaged to a woman who was an actress back in the 1890s, just like Matheson's, Matheson's character, uh, uh, Richard Collier, in Someone in Time. So... What you have is the suggestion that Charles Howard Johnson inspired the Finney characters in the story The Third Level and his novel Time It Again, and also 
in the Matheson novel somewhere in time. So you have to ask, did Finney know about Charles Howard Johnson? Did Finney know something about Johnson knowing something about time or seeing through time or traveling through time? It's, uh, it's, it's highly suggestive of that. And, of course, Matheson and Finney were contemporaries. You know, um, they were, their writings were popular at the same time. So certainly, uh, you know, knowing each other, Matheson had to have been influenced by Finney. But it, 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 suggests, um, it suggests that Johnson, uh, something with Johnson's story is kind of a, what you call a, an open secret is the best way I can put it, that uh, somehow Jack Finney became aware of and is giving us a clue as to how Johnson may have done this. If, in other words, we ask in the book, did Johnson jump through time? Was he a time traveler from the future, from our time, who was witnessing what was going on with the election, you know, with Donald Trump's initial election and then the 2020 campaigns and such? Did he jump back in time uh, to the 1880s, essentially to New York, concoct this story about the Cincinnati Art School, um, you know, live there for few years and for whatever reason decided to jump back to the future in 1896 or did he indeed die as does the character in the matheson novel um this is a question we have to we had to explore and we do in the book because um it's just it's a very nagging question particularly because of what finney and matheson wrote resonating so well with this Johnson mystery. Uh, we're we're going to head into another break here. This was a short segment. When we come back, I want to return to uh, Jack Finney and his connection to Charles Howard Johnson, the illustrator of Ingersoll Lockwood's books about uh, Baron Trump. Uh, and uh, one of my favorite buildings in New York features in one of Finney's books, I think it's uh, uh, Time and Again, and that is the Dakota Building. We'll find out what the connection is between the Dakota Building, of course, the late John Lennon's residence in New York City, and uh, the illustrator, Charles Howard Johnson. Back with more of our conversation right after these. Don't go away. Big Brother is listening, and so are you, to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Todd Wood, Walter Bosley, co-authors of The Mystery of Ingersoll Lockwood, available at lulu.com, and I fixed the link at strangeplanet.ca. So if you look under tonight's show information, in the uh, second hour, The Mystery of Ingersoll Lockwood, and you click on the title of the book, The Mystery of Ingersoll Lockwood, Volume 1, that'll take you right to the uh, website where you can uh, purchase the book, again, lulu.com. So, uh, Walter, you were telling us about science fiction writer Jack Finney and how um, there's a character in two of his books which could be the illustrator from Ingersoll Lockwood's books, Charles Howard Johnson. Um, how does uh, the Dakota Hotel, or not the Dakota Hotel, the Dakota building where John Lennon lived, how does that figure into all of this? Well, here's what's interesting. Um, in Time and Again, when Finney's uh, 
protagonist goes back to New York. It's in 1882, and the, he does it via the Dakota Building, but the Dakota Building did not exist as such until 1884. It was under construction, but the way it's depicted in the story, it just didn't exist. Now, uh, Finney explained this, you know, by saying, hey, I took some liberties because I was fascinated with the Dakota. Now, that, that suggests a whole bunch of interesting threads right there, but it could also be Finney's little clue um, about Charles Howard Johnson, the source of his main character, meaning that the, the Dakota not really existing in 1882 um, it, it is symbolic of the man who went back in time, who himself didn't exist in 1882. Uh, it, it, but it could also have been Finney himself uh, just being prescient about things happening at the Dakota, including something, an event so famous such as John Lennon's assassination. But um, Finney, interestingly, Finney's book, came out in 1970, and this was around the time that um, the U.S. Army uh, was de allegedly developing scientific remote viewing, okay, which they claim, as we know, to be able to look through time. In the novel, Time and Again, it's the, the DOD, specifically the U.S. Army, running this time travel program and the individuals who do it are all in individual little uh spaces that are decorated to the place and time that they are supposed to be time jumping to you could argue that this is similar to you know cubicles or little rooms where remote viewers would sit in this actual army program, an attempt to look through time. So what did this suggest to us? We had to ask the question, uh, was or is Charles Howard Johnson, was he a member of the early remote viewing program who actually was able to uh, physically manifest through remote viewing, traveling back in time? Or the more practical possibility, uh, did someone remote view with the army program did they remote view um some things in the future and the past and uh, you know how was this communicated back to the past it, it's it, there's all these possibilities but yet there it is you know in the mix did finney know something about the remote viewing program the fact that he made in his story the time travel program an army, specifically an army program, it, it's just too, it's uncanny. It could not have been a coincidence, in my opinion. Um, I, I think Finney may have known someone in that or something about that, uh, to be certain. But, but you have to ask, was Johnson one of them? Uh, you you find? find clues uh, of mm -hmm. Charles Howard Johnson's interest in, in time travel in, of all things, his illustration of uh, the Lady of Shalott. Now, is that a Longfellow poem? 
Yes, it is. Lady of Shalom. Yeah, it's one of my wife's, the mighty Aphrodite's favorite poem. She She's memorized it. She can recite it from beginning to end. Uh, so I should know it is. Okay, it is Longfellow. Um, tell me about this illustration of the Lady of Shalott by Charles Howard Johnson and connect that to his interest in time travel. Well, as we analyze in the book, um, you know, she has in the illustration, she has this mirror and the mirror is cracked and the mirror is used to see the outside world. So it suggests to us, to Todd and I, um, the, the possible means by which Johnson was seeing into the future. If he wasn't an actual time traveler, uh, he may have been using some form of uh, what is popularly called a looking glass technology, so to speak, back in the 1890s, which you know, the, the possibility of a mysterious technology, again, suggests the, um, uh, you know, the, the, the knowledge that Jonathan Swift had and um, the, the stuff that Byrne wrote and the suspicion that he was being fed information by the mysterious angelic society. Were um, the titans, were some of the titans involved in this arcane, um, strange, esoteric, looking-glass possibility and is that where um, Johnson, you know, learned about this, became exposed to this? Um, they would be a suspect if we're looking at, at a technology in the 1890s doing that, because, again, they were so mysterious. They were so into the mythology in the past. Um, they, for all intents and purposes, they, um, you know, meet the description of the philosopher-scientist, in a way, maybe philosopher-industrialist, you might say, you know, men who were enthused with such things. And um, the fact that Finney's stories take place in New York, um, you know, again, the Titans were in New York. Uh, what did Finney know? You know, what did Finney learn? Um, what did he know about the... Uh, what did the army possibly learn from either the records of the Titans or some type of, con some type of contact with the Titans? Or what did the army learn from what John Trump saw in the Tesla papers? See, it comes back to the possible conduit of connection between the Titans, between what happened in Lockwood's time to the present and Donald Trump. Or in, in, in Finney a few decades ago, it, 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 again, John Trump and Nikola Tesla could be the source of this information. Any connection there then to uh, Project Looking Glass? Well, my understanding of Project Looking Glass, the, the, the popularly discussed Project Looking Glass, is it, it's a very dubious um, origin. Um, and, and pedigree. So I would say if any similarities you would see would be that the, the, the person or people making that up were had also, you know, looked at some of these same things we're looking at. And uh, you also mentioned the uh, chronovisor uh, uh, in yes. the book. Another, another unfortunate um, 
dubious thing, uh, Father Ernetti's Chronovisor. There's an excellent, fascinating book written about this. And in the end of the book, um, the author and, uh, is very honest and, and states what Father Ernetti admitted, that the whole thing was not true. Um, it was very similar to the uh, Baird Spalding camera of future events, which preceded it. And Baird Spalding turned out to be um, just a uh, just a classic liar. <laughs> and um, in those two instances, the Chronovisor, a technology that allegedly uh, allowed this Father Ernetti to look into the past, um, you know, again turned out to be something he made up. But he did design. And then, of course, Baird Spaulding's claims um, just kind of became as dust, just like his other claims about himself personally. But, but you still have to wonder, was there something out there that was some sort of nugget of truth, which these men learned about or were told about, um, which inspired these things that we know turned out to be untrue, but where did they get these ideas? Is there something something out there that um, that is a looking glass technology or uh, process? I would say that what we have would would be the closest possibility right now is what is um, uh, allegedly what allegedly can be done with remote viewing. It could be that the whole time this is, uh, you know, remote viewing is not entirely an original thing. I mean, you know, there's been people who have, there's been stories of looking into the, uh, uh, the, the past or the future and such. It's just remote viewing was a particular process and method um, that was designed and presented and practiced going back to the 1970s, but it's not an entirely original idea. So where did they get the idea, you know? Um, right, right. And and did somehow, did Charles Howard Johnson, the illustrator of Ingersoll Lockwood's uh, book, uh, did he sort of tap into this? Did he have this ability? And then, therefore, was he the source uh, for Ingersoll Lockwood's uh, um, books about Baron Trump? Exactly. Exactly. Well, gentlemen, uh, this is fascinating, and um, we'll have to do this again. This is only this is volume one of the Lost Future series. Uh, again, available at Lulu.com. And uh, we didn't even get into Morgan Robertson, who is kind of a similar character to Ingersoll Lockwood in that he wrote a book, uh, Futility, which almost exactly mirrors the sinking of the uh, Titanic. But that was written, what, 20 maybe 15, 20 years prior. Um, right. Anyway, uh, a fascinating discussion. Thank you both. Todd Wood and Walter Bosley, appreciate your time. Thank you. All right, that's it for me. Back next week with a brand new program. Hope you'll be along for that one. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.